This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm your host for today, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas, and today I'm very excited to welcome back to the show Lincoln Mitchell. Uh, he's coming back on the show for a record-breaking third time. Um, Lincoln is a journalist and a writer who has written seven books and currently serves as an associate scholar at Columbia University's Arnold A. Saltzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's also a co-host of the Say It Ain't Contagious podcast, a show about baseball, about politics, and about social justice. We're going to be discussing his latest book, the third in a series of recent books he's written about the city of San Francisco and about its baseball team. This one's called The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992, which came out early in 2021 with Kent State University Press. Welcome back to the New Books Network, Lincoln. Thanks for having me back, Steve. It's great to be talking to you again. So traditionally, we like to ask on this show uh, how people got interested in writing, how they became scholars, but I've already asked you all of those questions, so I kind of want to start off with a different question today. What's your background as a baseball fan? What is your relationship with the sport of baseball, to the Giants specifically, and what is it about uh, baseball as a sport that you think holds such an allure for you? Well, I would say that I, I try to conceal the extent of my baseball obsession from many people who are close to me, because if they knew just how obsessed I am with baseball, they would really worry about me. Uh, I, I am, I've been a baseball fan since I was probably about six or seven years old. And I, I, to a great extent, you know, I grew up in a house, my, my mom had grown up in New York during the kind of Willie Mickey and the Duke era. And her family, my grandfather on that side, had been a Yankees fan because he moved to the Bronx around the time, from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, around the time the Yankees got Babe Ruth. So that was a hard context in which not to become a Yankees fan. And they became Dodgers fans in the 40s uh, with Jackie Robinson because they were very radical politically, and that was where the left was. The left was with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But my mother did not go with the Brooklyn Dodgers. She had the politics, but she stayed a Yankees fan. So in the fast forward to the mid 1970s, my brother and I are growing up single mom. My father had been a Cardinals fan because he loved Stan Musial, but he wasn't around in a kind of day to day way in our lives. And we were raised by you know a Yankees fan in 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 San Francisco, but that that that's not the team out there. And we became Giants fans, and it became a huge part of our lives. You know, in, in by the by say 76, 77, when I'm eight nine years old. My late brother and I would, you know, we could go out to the bus, uh, take the bus out to the ballpark, and my mom would give us six bucks each, which is not a lot of money even then. And that would be enough for bus fare 
an upper an upper deck reserved ticket, but of course you could sneak down to the box seats, and you know like a hot dog, a, an ice cream, and you know a popcorn or something. So you could you could eat not healthily for six dollars. And when I described this to to Bob Lurie as I was talking about this him for the book, he kind of I said I realize now that it was just kind of cheap childcare for my mother, um, but she did encourage it, and and I found that in the following years. Baseball really became a prism through which I began to understand the world. You know, I understood math and data by looking at baseball statistics. I understood, probably wrongly in retrospect, a lot of what I thought adult male life was like by reading about baseball players. And also began to understand American history by reading about baseball. And I would say since about 1976 or so, you know, read, particularly reading about baseball has been a kind of a psychological safe space for me. When I'm stressed out, uh, particularly now that I don't really take any drug stronger than chocolate, when I'm stressed out or anxious or, or, or you know, upset about something, I, I, I fall back into a baseball book or a good baseball blog. And, and I can't quite explain why, but it is very psychologically uh, comforting for me. But I also, you know, I'm not, I remain a fan of a team and really of two teams because as a, my mother's side of the family went back to being Yankees fans after the Dodgers went to California. And then we became Giants fans, my brother and I, because we were in San Francisco and that was our team. And, and over the years, as I moved back to New York, my sons who grew up in New York as baseball players, although they stopped playing in college, um, they embraced the Giants in the way that I had kind of embraced the Yankees. Part of their identity in New York were to be the only Giants fans in their class. And when the Giants won their first World Series in 2010, the first of three, for those of you that have been asleep for the last decade, uh, they were playing Little League and I was coaching. And people we know from the community, from Little League, from the, their school, from the synagogue, would stop us on the street and congratulate us as if, as if my sons had been pitching instead of, you know, Matt Cain and Tim Lincecum because they knew us as kind of the big Giants fans in the community. There's also I'm going to I'm going to totally butcher this this quote but there's some quote that I read somewhere that says that that baseball is the only sport that gives the impression of being almost understandable where if you just like read the correct statistics and 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 you know can look at a player through this one particular uh, numerical prism then the whole sport will fall into place and I think that that might be I I hear what you're saying about you know reading about baseball being this kind of psychological safe space because it almost seems like a part of life that you can almost just entirely understand if you just keep on reading reading about it. That's how I see it anyway. Exactly. You can almost like put a, a, a dome over it, so to speak, and understand it as a standalone <laughs> thing, but you can't. And the other great, right. great part of that quote is that, is that I find that even in my advanced middle age, I learn new things about baseball every day. I mean, I, mm-hmm. was, I was just in Detroit uh, on a trip to Wisconsin and back to pick up my son, and we were in a, a store there, and I picked up a book about Turkey Stearns and the Detroit Stars in the Negro Leagues, and I'm learning all about African-American baseball in Detroit, which I hadn't really studied much in the past. So there's so mm-hmm. much to learn, and there is such a rich, uh, a rich literature on baseball that it yeah. feels almost endless. Yeah. Well, and, and, hope, and you're, you're – yeah, and sorry. I'm hoping to, and I hope that in some small way I'm contributing to that rich literature. I was going to say the exact same thing that that with with this this book and the series of books that you've written on the San Francisco Giants, I definitely think that you you have been adding to that literature. And let's talk about this book for a minute. Why a, a, a book on this particular era in San Francisco Giants history and on the city of San Francisco in in this time period? Your last book took us kind of through the end of the 1970s. Why did you feel that the story should be continued? Why take the story through the 80s up through 1992? Well, I am. There were two reasons. One is a baseball reason, and one is a San Francisco reason. The San Francisco reason is that I, 
I am thinking myself as on an intellectual journey, and maybe others don't recognize this, or maybe they do, to kind of figure out San Francisco. What makes San Francisco the unusual city that it is? So San Francisco Year Zero looked at 1978 in great depth. This is, is much more of just a straight baseball book, but it's part of that answering that question. The other uh, question is that this is a period in baseball, Giants history, 76 to 92, that is it's kind of the forgotten era. I uh, One of the working titles I had, which I didn't use for the book, was Between the Bonses. It's almost exactly the period after they traded Bobby Bonds and before they signed Barry Bonds. So there's no Willie Mays. There's no Juan Marshall. There, are, there aren't really great, memorable teams, although there are some great, memorable players and, and, and one pennant-winning team. But it's the forgotten period. They're still out in Candlestick Park, but they're not new to the city. And that's also a cultural moment that tends to be forgotten in San Francisco. It's after the summer of love and before the tech boom. So it's this area that, that is, in my view, not sufficiently explored, particularly from the perspective of somebody who was a young person then. And then the other reason that I thought these dates, 76 to 92, were significant was that in January of 76, the Giants were sold to Labatt Brewing Company and had moved to Toronto. And I use those tenses deliberately because that's how it was reported in both the San Francisco and, equally importantly, the Toronto newspapers. And the new mayor and Bob Lurie, who bought the team at that point, had to do this, really rescue the team and keep them in San Francisco. So there's this, they're almost ripped away from San Francisco in 76. And by the end of 92, a similar dynamic was in place where they were gone to Tampa. I mean, I know people who went to that last Giants game at the stick in 92 and, and sat in the seats and cried because they thought the Giants had left. And so this period where every year, can they stay in San Francisco? Where will they play? What are they going to do about Candlestick Park? Was well, that, that dominated the whole discourse about the Giants. So I wanted to kind of capture that, that period. Well, let's talk about the state of the Giants in the kind of mid to late 1970s, because as you were just indicating and as you write about in the book, the Giants were in serious trouble in this time period. And I remember you talking a bit about this in San Francisco Year Zero as well, but it's so shocking to me that the Giants were so on kind of, you know, living on the edge of a knife like this, because to me today, they seem like one of the most established teams in their cities in San Francisco. And, you know, there, there just was news yesterday that actually Oakland looks like it might be the team that will be moving next. So what was it about the Giants in the mid-1970s that made them sort of the next team to go, the next team to possibly relocate? So let's talk about this period from 1973 to 1975, which are the three years leading up to where my book starts. Uh, they had in the previous roughly 18 to 24 months traded away or sold away four future Hall of Famers and had really little to show for it besides, you know, Pete Falcone and Sam McDowell uh, and Charlie Williams. Mays had gone to the Mets, McCovey uh, to the Padres, Perry to the Indians, and Marischal ended up with the Red Sox and then tragically the Dodgers uh, before he retired. The team was last in attendance uh, in those three years in the National League and in some of those years in all of baseball. And they'd only been in San Francisco about 15, 16 years at that time, so they were not deeply rooted there. And they were, they were a bad team, the most memorable players, particularly after they traded Bobby Bonds, were Bobby Mercer and Gary Matthews, who are good players, but players you don't associate with the Giants. You know, they had some pitching. John Montefusco won the Rookie of the Year in 75, and he was this exciting new player. But they had, you know, a lot of guys, Chris Spire, Daryl Thomas. Spire was a good player, but, you know, Mike Sadek, just very, very forgettable players. And they were still playing at Candlestick Park which we could talk about more, but that had clearly become a problem by the early 70s, by the mid-70s. And significantly, they had not found a post-Willie Mays identity. When the team moved from New York to San Francisco, Willie Mays, who had just turned 90 the other day, by the way, 
But Willie Mays was the Giants. I mean, he was the most famous and best player in the game. And here he was coming across the country to San Francisco. Now, the city kind of embraced him. I mean, when he went to go find a house in Western San Francisco, they didn't embrace him at all because he was African-American. But Willie Mays was the face of that franchise. And then he was midway through the 72 season swapped to the Mets for Charlie Williams. And the team has no identity. The attendance is bad. And Horace Stoneham, whose family had owned the team for about half a century, is running out of money. So much is he running out of money that in 1975, after the season, the National League puts the team in receivership, essentially, and assigns Speck Richardson, a kind of longtime executive who at that time had been most famous for trading Joe Morgan from the Astros to the Reds, and was probably was not the greatest trade in Astros history, um, but to, to run the team because Stoneham couldn't balance the budget. And he, one of the reasons he sold, he's traded Met, Mays to the Mets was because he needed to pay him. He couldn't pay him anymore. So the team was in really bad shape. And there was this sense of, you know, this was at the tail end of the period where teams were moving a lot. So it still seemed plausible that the team would move. And then Labatt Brewery came along and said, we're going to move him and take him to Toronto. And that seemed like that was almost certain to happen. And what was the relationship with the Giants and uh, and their city and San Francisco in the late 1970s, particularly after the very turbulent, turbulent excuse me, year of, of 1978, which is one of the most chaotic and, and terrifying years in the city's history? Right, and you can, there's a great book about that called uh, San Francisco Years There. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of it, actually. <laughs> so check it out. Rutgers University Press. Uh, some professor from Columbia wrote it. Um, the, the Giants in that post-Willie Mays iteration, which lasted you know, into the, certainly through the rest of the 70s and into the 80s, this was a city that was changing so much and where a lot of the people coming into the city you know, were coming from other parts of the country, going back to the late 60s, and kind of trying to remake themselves, remake the city, remake the culture. And baseball had this kind of older conservative place in the, in the, in the American psyche. So if you came out to San Francisco with flowers in your hair in 1969 or 68, you were unlikely to go out to Candlestick Park and catch a ball game. And if you were, you know, the one out of, you know, four siblings from, you know, uh, I don't know, Boston or somewhere who moved out to San Francisco, you were kind of the radical one and you didn't want those old things like baseball. And at the same time, the ballpark was in a part of the city that was physically removed from the rest of the city. I mean, if you look at a map of San Francisco, the Bayview-Hunters Point section where Candlestick Park was, it's on the other side of the freeways. It just doesn't feel accessible. Additionally, it was a heavily African-American neighborhood, and a lot of people, you know, for, for, often for all the wrong reasons, all the kind of racist reasons, didn't, a lot of white people didn't want to go out there. So it really felt like by the late 70s and early 80s, when I was a big Giants fan, it felt like having an interesting hobby, like black and white photography, you know, or, or South Asian cooking or something. It made you stand out, but also made you feel a little bit like a weirdo. Uh, you certainly did not see at that time anybody wearing Giants hats, T-shirts, sweatshirts, except for people at the baseball game and maybe little kids, you know, on their way out to play ball. And as you've alluded to a couple times already on the show, part of the Giants' perennial problem in this era was, was their stadium, was Candlestick Park. And just, you know, speaking for myself as a baseball fan growing up in the 90s, way out on the East Coast, I thought of Candlestick Park as iconic. Well, that was just where the Giants played. But as someone like yourself who actually grew up going to games in this place, you kind of have very different memories and a very different sort of uh, uh, take on that stadium. So what was up with Candlestick Park? What was wrong with that place? Well, first of all, there's a part of me that will always love Candlestick Park. And I, I've told people, if you wake me up at three in the morning and say, what ballpark are you in? I would probably say Candlestick Park. For me, it's always, it's like my home park, even though it's not there anymore. The, 
The first thing you have to understand about Candlestick Park is that San Francisco is a city of microclimates. And what that means is that the weather can be really different in a distance of only a mile or two apart, two, two places a mile or two neighborhoods a mile or two apart. So when I go to San Francisco, I stay at my mom's place. And if I go visit my very good friend who lives a mile or two away, guy I've known you know since third grade, I will, by the time I get there, have taken off my jacket, right? When I get to his house, we'll sit on in his deck or go to the park, you know, wearing t-shirts. And in my neighborhood, you got to have a windbreaker and a sweater on. So you can go move a few blocks and the temperature changes a lot. Candlestick Point, where Candlestick Park was located, was on a kind of spit of land in the eastern part of the city, but on the bay. The eastern part of the city is generally warmer, but when it's that exposed to the bay, it isn't. What that meant was that during the daytime, Candlestick Park was great. It was warm. It was sunny. But if you sat in the lower deck, once the temperature could drop 15 degrees in an inning because once your section got in the shade, it was cold. And at night, it was not just very cold, but very windy. Let me try to put this in some kind of context, or let me try to explain what I mean. When I was in middle school and high school, I would go to New York uh, every winter break, so Christmas break, uh, to visit my grandparents and my other family, my aunt and uncle, my cousins. And I would dress for Candlestick Park in August for night game the way I would for, you know, going to Central Park in December in New York. It was that cold. But the cold wasn't the only issue. The other issue was the wind. If you were sitting in a game at Candlestick Park, people with people, and by people, I mean people like me, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but you, we would go up to the upper deck and throw off of the upper deck, let's say a bunch of napkins from your hot dog, peanut shells, all-star ballots, just to watch them whirl and whirl and whirl in the wind for minutes. You know, not like 30 seconds, but five, 10 minutes. And if you looked closely, you could see these little dervishes of, of napkins and peanut shells and all that kind of thing in the outfield, occasionally around home plate. Now, I was a fan. I was not a player. But so it's hard enough to sit there and freeze and the wind is blowing everywhere around you. But if you're batting and you've got to stand in against, I don't know, Nolan Ryan when he was with Houston or something or J.R. Richard and you're looking or, or earlier generation earlier, Sandy Koufax, and there's peanut shells and everything blowing around. It's just a terrible place to hit. It also, um, Horace Stoneham, when he moved the team from New York, he was obsessed. He wanted to make sure there was parking. There was about ten or 15,000 parking places around Candlestick Park. What that meant was that for people like me, because I started going way before I could drive or had a car, you had to take this bus. There was no—San Francisco has odd public transportation anyway, but there was no Muni Metro, which is kind of like the above-ground rail, to get you there. It was this long bus that would take this winding route. And because of the parking lot that surrounded the ballpark, you couldn't really stop anywhere in the neighborhood for a bite afterwards because you had to walk through this enormous parking lot. So it was both remote, it was very cold— it was not a great place for baseball. And, and on top of which, they shared it with the 49ers, the football team. And so towards the end of the season, now of course, the football a field is usually in the outfield. But Will Clark, who was, you know, really one of the great, great players from this period that I'm talking about, described to me how he'd go back behind first base to, you know, catch a, a foul ball. It would bounce and he'd pick it up and there'd be green paint on it because the Niners would have torn up the turf and they would have just painted it, it green. Uh, after that. But but the result of this was that they were always, no matter, even when the team was good, the Giants always struggled with attendance. And of course, when you struggle with attendance, you struggle with revenue. And 
when it's not a great place to play, you can't sign free agents. And I mean, Bob Lurie told me, he said, there, you know, we would get in negotiation and we would offer the exact same amount of money, but particularly if he was a hitter, they would always choose someone else. And it was very clear it was because of Candlestick Park. Yeah, and what, I mean, because of this, in part because of the park, because of uh, the team having trouble getting people to actually attend games in this park, what were the Giants teams like in this era? What kind of teams were being fielded at Candlestick during the 1970s and into the early 1980s? Who were some of the big-name players, and was this a good team? Were they were they fun to watch, and did they win any games? They had some kind of high highs and some pretty low lows in this era. Right. So so taking the whole era, you know, from, from 19... 19- 1971 is the last gasp of the kind of Mays, McCovey, Marischal Giants. And they, they get to the NLCS, but they lose to a very good Pittsburgh Pirates team that goes on to beat Baltimore in the World Series. They did not make the postseason again until 1987. 16 years when one, you know, when it's only a six-team division is pretty bad. They had a couple of very good, exciting seasons. The 1978 season, which I've written about extensively, but that was the year they were in first place most of the summer. And they were led by Jack Clark, Darrell Evans, Vita Blue, John Montefusco, and Willie McCovey, who had come back in 77 and won Comeback Player of the Year. Um, 79, 80, and 81 are kind of mediocre lost seasons. 82, Frank Robinson is the manager now, and they put together this odd veteran team. Reggie Smith, the old Dodger, is playing first base. Joe Morgan is playing second base. Darrell Evans is, is, is over third base, who, who was immortal, but by then was in his mid-30s. Jack Clark, who was very young. Uh, when he came up, was still the star right fielder. Chili Davis was there by then. And and that team, which didn't have much pitching, was in this th- great three-team pennant race for the NL West title and got knocked out of... The Dodgers came into to San Francisco. The Giants needed a sweep uh, to, to sustain the race. The Dodgers beat him on Friday night, and they knocked the Giants out. But then on Sunday, the... Dodgers had to win to force a one-game playoff with Atlanta, and the great Joe Morgan hit a three-run home run to beat the Dodgers in Candlestick Park. And that home run was probably the highlight of the period from 1972 to about 1985. Not a home run that got the Giants into the playoffs, right? As, as a, but, but a home run that simply knocked the Dodgers out of the playoffs. And that also speaks to the intensity of the Dodger-Giant rivalry, even when the team was bad. But then by the time but that team... The next three years were probably the three worst years in Giants history till since before John McGraw was managing the team. And this was a team that had was constantly, you know, Johnny LeMaster was still playing shortstop, who was who couldn't hit, and whose defense, I think we could charitably say it is disputed as to whether or not he was a good defender. The team suddenly got very old and began to just kind of bring in endless seemed like endless streams of past their prime veterans. Mike Vale, Jerry Martin, Gene Richards, Manny Trio, and finished in last place in 84 and in 85, which was just, that was the, the nadir of the Giants' existence in San Francisco. And th- that was, again, a moment where it wasn't clear how, how can they stay here. The problems at Candlestick were getting worse. The A's were beginning to get good again. And, and these Giants teams, you know, Jack Clark who had been a very, very good player. They traded him away for essentially a good fielding shortstop and a bunch of guys who never really fit in. You know, Johnny LeMaster, who in my view was the symbol of this Giants incompetence, was uh, traded away uh, in kind of early 1985 season. And in by late 85, even though they finished in last place, things are beginning to change. 
and this is also an era when baseball itself is changing um, and, you know, kind of in, in some ways turning into the sport that we recognize today. And the Giants are at the forefront of some of these changes. So how is this period, the late 70s, the early 1980s, how is this an important turning point in baseball history, particularly from the perspective of, of labor relations and the kind of business money fiscal side of baseball? Well, uh, to, to answer that question, we have to talk about Bob Lurie a little bit. We haven't really talked about him a lot, but Bob Lurie owned the team the entire time, the, the entire period covered in this book. He bought the team in January 76. He got pulled up half the money uh, because the mayor, George Moscone, was desperate to find an owner who would really agree to keep the Giants in San Francisco. Lurie stepped up right away, and uh, because of Bob Lurie's deep roots in San Francisco, Moscone understood that Bob Lurie was not going to be in a hurry to take the team out of the city. Long short of it is that Bob Lurie is the kind of guy who could have owned a team in the 40s or the 50s. One of the wealthiest families in the city, but not a national, you know, didn't run some national company or organization or finance or anything like that, made his money, actually the family's father made the money, but through real estate in San Francisco, a little bit in Chicago, but mostly in San Francisco. So deep ties to the city, right? If you're in the real estate business, you want the city to be strong because that means, frankly, rents go up and real estate values go up and you can make more money. So his future was linked to the city. And so he was that kind of classic wealthy guy from the city where the team was. And he was the sole owner. But if you, let's say, had been a baseball fan in 1935, 1936 offseason and had slept through to the 1975, 76 offseason, you kind of would have understood what was going on. You know, the trades, a few sales, rookie prospects, all of that. 1976, 77 season, everything changes. Right, that's the the first real year of free agency. You know, it had been starting up with Catfish Hunter, Andy Messersmith in the previous years, but Dave McNally. But this is the huge year of free agency, and that really changes baseball. You know, almost that entire A's team. You know, Don Baylor, Joe Rudy, Raleigh Fingers, Gene Tennis, Sal Bando, uh, Reggie Jackson actually was with the Orioles, and no team quite knows what to do with him. The Giants in that first year of free agency, they don't really know what to do either. They want to sign these guys, but they can't compete. And they go out and sign Willie McCovey, who no one was interested in. And dollar for dollar, Willie McCovey was the best of any of those new free agents in 1977. He paid him almost nothing, and he was a great slugger who kind of got a resurgence in his career that landed him ultimately and deservedly in the Hall of Fame. But the Giants really struggled to figure out free agency. You know, one, people didn't always want to come to San Francisco. Two, they, 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 you know, they spend enormous amounts of money on players like Rennie Stennett. Who, who were just disastrous, right? L- years later on, on Kevin Bass, so you just, you knew didn't fit in. They, they made some good free agent signings, Brett Butler, Dave Rigetti later, but they'd struggled to figure it out. And then, of course, in 1981, there's the strike. And the strike was an effort by the owners to, to rein in free agency, to put some limits on it, because they felt that it was, that the players were just, could just negotiate and get whatever they want, and a team, if upon losing a free agent, would get nothing back, and that would upset the competitive balance. Ironically, in the first free agent year, it was a lot of the small market teams that, that did very well. The Padres, for example, signed Gene Tennis and Raleigh Fingers. The Brewers signed Sal Bando. But that strike in 1981, which was the first really major strike, it cost a third of the season. It made this very odd split season format. And that was the beginning of a period of labor unrest that lasted past this period, right? So we have the collusion around free agency in the later 80s, leading up to the 94 strike about a year or so after after I closed this book. But interestingly, Bob Lurie told me, though, that, that one of the reasons 
that he wanted to sell the team was he didn't want to be around for that strike negotiation. Like he just didn't, he knew that would drive down the value of the team and he wanted out. So this is a period when salaries skyrocket, the value of teams skyrocket. In general, more money comes into the game. Attendance across the board goes up. And the game really changes because of that and takes more of what we think of as this modern form. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I thought it was really fascinating reading this part of the book about the early days of free agency and just reading about teams and fans alike trying to just, you know, just navigate and figure out what this meant and and what was a good free agent signing, what was a bad free agent signing. I mean, today, the average fan can tell you the difference between a Rule 5 draft pick and, you know, a, a B-type compensation player, right? These kind of arcana of, of free agency. But at the time, people really had no idea what it meant and were trying to kind of figure it out as they went along, which I just thought was, was a really interesting part of the book. And they also had no, no real sense of, of how to evaluate talent. So if you look at that first crop of free agents, a lot of those big contracts, they, those players were never really that good because they were too old. So Sal Bando, who in my view is a borderline Hall of Famer, but by 1977, he was kind of done. He had one or two good years left, similarly with Joe Rudy. And, and I think teams didn't quite get that. You know, so they would, you know, the Giants, I go back to Rennie Stennett, but he was a good, good hitter who got hurt and he hadn't been healthy in a long time. And then they signed him to a big contract. It was never clear why. And the fans, you know, today I think maybe not not good, but if you're a fan of the Milwaukee Brewers, you know that, I don't know, when Garrett Cole or Bryce Harper become a free agent, you're not going to be in the running. But fans didn't see it that mm-hmm. way back then because it just hadn't evolved that way back then. And also this was so new. So every year, I mean, that that, that 77, my friends were like, wow, the Giants might get Reggie Jackson. Well, there's no way the Giants were going to get Reggie Jackson, right? If After the 78 season, the Giants might get Pete Rose or Tommy John. Why can't Bob Lurie sign Pete Rose? Well, because Pete Rose can take his, you know, someone else can offer a lot more money. So it, it was all new, and that made it kind of fun. And it and at first, it it was, it did equalize. It did make, you know, it, certainly the California Angels used free agency to leapfrog into into uh, contending for the for the division, ultimately winning a couple of divisions. But also the Yankees began, and also some of the big market teams like the Dodgers didn't play in free agency yet. So it made it a little bit easier. But the Yankees really began to clean up. And that was, and a lot of that early, even as far back as 81 movement was small market teams was a euphemism for stopping the Yankees. And in part because no one liked George Steinbrenner, as far as I can see. So after the strike in 81, uh, the Giants, and, and as you pointed out, the Giants were at best pretty mediocre through much of the period that, that we're talking about here. But after the strike, the Giants fielded some pretty bad baseball teams, which of course meant that they needed to find other ways to draw fans to Candlestick Point, out, out to Candlestick Park. So what did they try to do? What tactics did they uh, attempt to try to draw people in to see bad baseball in the cold? Some of these were very distinctly kind of San Franciscan type promotions. What did they try to do? Well, they had to draw, you know, fans to come see a bad team in the cold, which is not as fun as it sounds. And they also had to do it in a city that was that had a different identity. There were the identity between the time that in 1958, when the Giants moved to San Francisco, San Francisco was in many ways a typical American city with better views and better food. By the the early 1980s, it was really a different kind of a city. And they had to kind of do something that spoke to the gestalt of that city. So three things come to mind. One 
was one year, this is probably 83, for the kind of spokesperson to sell the tickets, they had Father Guido Sarducci from Saturday Night Live, right? who was this kind of, if you don't remember him, this kind of fake priest comedian. And he would do these advertisements to buy Giants tickets, which was completely irreverent. No other team in baseball would be doing things like that, you know, especially this guy who would actually wear like a Catholic uh, priest collar and ramble on about the Pope or whatever on Saturday Night Live, but on there he was selling Giants tickets. The two really most famous promotions are, one, we spoke earlier about how cold it was at Candlestick Park and how cold it was particularly at night. So the Giants created this idea of the what they called the Quad de Candlestick, the, you know, the, the cross of candlestick, the Quad de Guerre, the Quad de Candlestick. And it said on it, uh, I think I'm, I'm trying to read mine now, Vini Vidi Vixi, which allegedly in Latin meant I came, I saw, I survived. And the idea was that if you stayed to the end of an extra inning night game, you would get a Quad de Candlestick. That would be proof that you are the kind of Giants fan that can endure, that can tough it out. And this became very popular. Now, from a marketing perspective, so people would go to the games, and you'll still see this now at a Giants game occasionally, older fans with quad candlestick on their hat, on their cap. Apparently, Mike Kruko, who was a player at that time, started that. We don't, uh, that's the legend. But the problem, of course, from a marketing perspective, is you can't schedule extra inning games in advance, right? So it's not like this Tuesday, we have an extra inning game against against the Pirates come out to the ballpark. So it was just, it didn't help attendance. It just kind of helped the esprit de corps. And, and then, the, in, in my mind, the, the, the greatest mascot in, in, in Major League Baseball was the Crazy Crab. And, you know, the 80s were this period, the mid-80s, where teams were having the Philly Fanatic, the San Diego Chicken, Crazy George in, across the bay in Oakland, who was this shirtless kind of hippie-type guy who would bang a tambourine and get everybody cheering. And the Giants, because, you know, San Franciscans... We're, we think of ourselves as a little jaded, a little sophisticated. We're, we're not going to just cheer for a mascot. So they created the Crazy Crab. And one thing you should know uh, I, I, is that crab is one of the signature dishes in San Francisco. And obviously, if you keep kosher, it's not. But for everybody else, there's all, you go to a, the Vietnamese places out in the sunset of the Richmond district and you get, get great crab. You go to the Fisherman's Wharf, you can buy fresh crab. You know, a lot of Italian-Americans make chipino with crab out there on Christmas Eve. So it's really part of the culinary culture of the city. So they got this guy, dressed him up in a giant crab costume, and he would come out in the fifth inning, this is in 1984, and they would play this absolutely inane song, and he would dance around, and you were supposed to boo the crazy crab. It's the only mascot that you were supposed to boo. And in the book, I talk about the backstory, how they came up with the idea, how they kind of promoted the fans to boo, and they made up surveys that fans would boo a mascot and all of this. But it really kind of, even though the team was terrible, it, you began to see that the team was exploring a way to build a relationship with a complicated city. You couldn't do it the way, this was not a city where, you know, players, uh, you know, when, when, when a player would come on the postgame show and talk about how God did something or other, which happens a lot in baseball, that did not bring fans that did not bring fans in the way it might have for other franchises. You had to do something a little different. And the Crazy Crab and the Qua are really part of the, the Giants' effort to make a personality that fit for this very unusual city. And I think ultimately they succeeded in that. In your last two books about the Giants, you really make the case that, that you can look at the history of San Francisco by looking at the history of the Giants, that this team serves as a prism for the, the, the changing history of the city itself. And, you know, as you kind of said at the outset, this is a city whose identity is changing right now. And with that, the Giants are trying to build their own identity, too. So I really see the connection there the, b b between the team and the city. 
Yes, that's that, that's right. And and this is the period where by ninety, but by the time this book ends, the city has changed and the team has changed. They've kind of worked it out. By ninety two, ninety three, the Giants, even though the Forty ers are very good, are the marquee franchise in the Bay Area. For the last 20, 30 years, if you go out to San Francisco, even when the Warriors are really good, you will see more Giants hats than any other team, including, you know, the, the A's, the Raiders when they were there. But this was not the case back then. Yeah. The, the 80s was the 49ers decade for some obvious reasons as well. I mean, I, and I was, of course, a 49ers fan, but not the way I was a Giants fan. And after the doldrums of the mid-1980s, the Giants kind of, they, they get good again. They begin to improve. How does this happen? What's the nucleus of this team that ends up propelling them to the World Series in 1989? Well, there are two things that happen. One, at the end of the 80, mid, towards the end of the 85 season, they fire the manager, they fire the general manager, and they bring in Al Rosen to, to run the team, who brings in Roger Craig to manage the team. And, and Bob Lurie finally has a management team that he can trust and who knows what they're doing. But they also, beginning a couple years or so before that, in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, the Giants wasted all of their draft picks. They, they had very little talent coming up through the organization, other than Chili Davis and Bob Brenly. But by, by the mid-80s, they begin to draft better, and they build a nucleus really around Robbie Thompson, who, is, who, is, who comes up through the system as a top-notch defensive second baseman, but actually begins to hit. So he's actually a valuable offensive player. And then the key player uh, above all else was Will Clark. And Will Clark was probably the most famous college player in the country in 84. The Giants had the number two pick, and the, uh, the Brewers took B.J. Surhoff, who was a fine player. The Giants grabbed Will Clark. And Will Clark brought an attitude to the Giants that dovetailed with what Rosen and Craig were trying to do. And in 1985, when the Giants were terrible, one of the reasons they were terrible is first grade, first base was a combination of, you know, David Green, who'd come over in the Jack Clark trade and was terrible, Gary Rashis, who never really could hit anymore. I think Manny Trio was still playing second base, and if you hit it, the ball two or three steps in the direction, he could field it, but he was done. And opening day 1986, they put both these rookies, Robbie Thompson and Will Clark, in the starting lineup, and they're playing the Astros in Houston against Nolan Ryan, and Will Clark is leading off. I'm not quite sure why. He was much more... When you think of Will Clark as more of a number three hitter, but he's a young guy. And his first plate appearance, he hits a home run off of Nolan Ryan on opening day. And that was a statement. And the statement was, the Giants aren't laughing stocks anymore. And they weren't. And from with that nucleus, they also had Jeffrey Leonard, who was a valuable player throughout these terrible 80s teams, who'd come over in a trade for Mike Ivey, who was still a very good hitter. They, were, they had a third baseman named Chris Brown, who they thought had a very good future. And the pitching was beginning to come together. And then in 87, they get, they're in contention, and they make a series of trades, that, the two major trades, that really bring, bring the team together. One, the first is, I'm not the chronological order, but I think it was July 4th, they send Chris Brown and a bunch of, uh, a bunch of other, Mark Davis, a bunch of other players to San Diego, and in exchange, they get Dave Dravecki, Craig Lefferts, and Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell, that time, is a third baseman. But with Kevin Mitchell... Will Clark and Robbie Thompson, you can see the offensive nucleus emerging. Dravecki joined the pitching staff. And then a couple weeks later, they get Rick Rushell, big daddy from the Pirates. And now you see this team coming together. In the meantime, they've drafted Matt Williams, who's not, as a shortstop, who's not quite ready. But he comes up kind of in 88 and 89, ends up pushing Mitchell to left field, where he's coached by Willie Mays to help convert him from an infielder to an outfielder. And that's the nucleus of that great, great team is Clark. 
Thompson, Jose Uribe, who couldn't hit much, but was a, a fine, fine defensive shortstop, Matt Williams, the third, uh, Kevin Mitchell and left, uh, Brett Butler, who they signed in 88, who was a, a great leadoff hitter. And then right field, they struggle a little bit, but but Candy Maldonado plays out there, Pat Sheridan plays out there, and they get some a very strong team. And then Russell, uh, Dravecki, uh, Don Robinson, who also comes over in a trade in a bullpen by Craig Lefferts. And then in 89, during the pennant race, they go get Steve Bedrosian from Atlanta to fill out as, on the kind of the back end of the bullpen. And that's the nucleus of a team that was good enough to win two divisions in three years and one pennant, and not quite good enough to win the World Series. Well, and let's talk about that World Series, because the 1989 World Series is, of course, infamous. And for those listening who might not be aware of what happened during that World Series, uh, tell us about Game 3 in particular, and what did the events that happened just before Game 3 started, what does it mean for San Francisco? Okay, so Game 3. Now, what you have to note here is that they're in the World Series against the Oakland A's. This is the Battle of the Bay or the Bay Bridge Series, and this is a very good A's team. Some of these players... Uh, Ricky Henderson, who had come over to midseason trade back to the A's, who was at the absolute top of his game. Dennis Eckersley, who at that time was a completely dominant closer. Uh, you know, those guys are, are among the greatest at their position, no matter what. They also had some people, uh, you know, the, an aging Dave Parker who could still hit. Very solid rest of the lineup. And two guys who've been associated with, with you know, various kinds of enhancements, uh, Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, and they may or may not have been doing that at that time. But this was a very good, heavily favored A's team. Dave Stewart was the ace of the pitching staff. And, and the A's beat the Giants badly in the first two games in Oakland. So they come back to San Francisco for game three. And, you know, if you're a Giants fan, you're thinking, if we can some way win two out of three, we can maybe have a shot. This is the first World Series game at Candlestick Park in 27 years. The place is packed. The game is about to start. And the biggest earthquake since 1906 happens. The... This is this was the big one. I was there. I was not at the game. I was actually across the bay in Vallejo, and I've been through dozens of earthquakes, probably more in San Francisco. This was by far the biggest I ever felt. I had to, you know, get under my desk and, and, and hide. Not hide, but shield myself. And then I had to drive down to Santa Cruz that night, which is about 80 miles south of the city, closer to the epicenter. And I'll just say this. I was sleeping on a futon on the floor, and it felt like being on a float in a swimming pool because it just kept moving because the earth was settling. So it was an enormous earthquake. And... The, the, the descriptions from the players, and I have a lot of descriptions from the players, from the mayor of the city at the time, from you know, the, the Bob Lurie, about what happened. But basically, you know, the players immediately looking into the stands, where are my, you know, my kids, my wife, my parents, my grandparents, whoever it is. The ballpark, amazingly, because the, the former mayor, Diane Feinstein, had done some, done some uh, seismic work there a year, years ago, and everyone laughed. Why are you fixing Candlestick Park? It's never going to sell out. But of course, she said something about the 49ers. But it, really, it, it ended up saving lives. And there was, I think, Will Clark or someone like that told the story about a guy who had gone up on the light fixture to fix something, and he's holding on to the light fixture as it's shaking, you know, all the way from left to right, uh, this giant light fixture because of the earthquake. The stadium shook, but it didn't, nobody was killed in, in the earthquake in, at the ballpark. And it probably helped that they were fans from both teams, so nobody panicked because Oakland also you know, was part of the earthquake. They, they, they're from that earthquake world. But the effect on the city was devastating. I mean, the, the Bay Bridge, which connects San Francisco and Oakland, it didn't fall into the water, but the top layer fell on the bottom layer, so you couldn't get across. This was at the time that the uh, Berlin Wall was being dissembled in Germany and, and prompting Herb Cain to quote, whoever thought it'd be easier to get from East Berlin to West Berlin than from the East Bay to San Francisco. Um, but 
and whole neighborhoods in in downtown Oakland, but also in San Francisco, like the marina, uh, some of the, many of the areas would have been built on landfill in the northern part of the city were devastated, and people had to leave their homes, uh, businesses had to shut down. There was a billions dollars worth of damages. About fifty or sixty people died, and that number could have been much higher. But this was and that earthquake defined the World Series. And of course, they they had to wait for ten days, um, and I can tell that story if you want. But they had to wait for ten days, and when they resumed, the Giants, the the A's went to Arizona. And practiced. They were on a mission. They'd lost that 88 World Series, although heavily favored against the Los Angeles Dodgers. They were not going to do it again. And the Giants kind of, they stayed involved with the community, which was, you know, the right thing to do on some level, trying to help, but but they were not prepared. And they ended up losing the next two games after a 10-day delay. They got drubbed, and, and that was that. Well, why don't you tell us that story? What okay, happened so, during that 10-day that, that delay? So, so this is a this is one of the great stories in the book. I'm going to tell it, but you should still read it because in the book I give more detail. But it wasn't clear when they'd be able to play at Candlestick Park or when they'd be able to even get to Candlestick Park. So Faye Vincent, who was the new commissioner and was really kind of, every now and then baseball gets a commissioner, and we may be in this period now, who just isn't up to the job. And, and Faye Vincent was that. He also was an East Coast guy. So he convened a meeting to figure out what to do about the city. And about where to, how to get back, how to finish the World Series. And he called Bob Lurie, who owned the Giants, Al Rosen, who, as I said, was, was the general manager, uh, Corey Bush, who was kind of Bob's right-hand man, and Art Agnos. And Art Agnos was the mayor of San Francisco at the time. And Art Agnos, uh, and, I, and, I, and this story, I, I, I heard Agnos and Corey and Bob tell it. So I know that they all agreed on, they were all in the room, Rosen's not around. So this is, this is in fact, what happened. And, Al, and, and Art Agnos, I don't know if you know much about him, is a kind of, he'd been a left-of-center assemblyman, a progressive mayor, uh, but kind of a tough guy. Like, Agnes was shot in the chest at point-blank range and survived during the 70s. He was kind of a tough guy and had a bit, a bit of a hothead. And Faye Vincent says to Art Agnos, when are we going to get the World Series started? And Art Agnos said, well, I don't know, because we got all this other, like, they were like, at this point, they're, they're taking rubble and hoping not to find dead bodies, right? I mean, they're really, it's really bad. And Vincent says to Agnos, I'd hate to be the first mayor whose city couldn't finish the World Series. And Agnos, now his, he takes umbrage to that and says, I'd hate to start playing the World Series again when we're still looking for dead bodies here in San Francisco. So this meeting is not going well. Then Faye Vincent comes up with the extraordinarily terrible idea of moving the World Series to San Diego, to finish it in San Diego. Now, you may note that the National League representative in the World Series was the San Francisco Giants, not the San Diego Padres. And if you know the players in this room, Again, your first question is, what does the mayor, kind of a hothead, what is he going to say? But Bob Lurie, who is a very soft-spoken, not a guy who loves confrontation, although you shouldn't really mess with him, but he's, he's, he's going to avoid confrontation if he can, and he's soft-spoken. Bob Lurie, of all people, cuts off Art Agnos, pounds his fist on the table, and I'm going to use a, a light expletive here, and says, over my goddamn dead body, are we moving this World Series to San Diego? After all, we've, after all we've gone through to get this World Series back here for these fans who've waited 27 years, we're finishing it in San Francisco. And then he sat back down. And that's what happened. A turbulent 10 days. Man, it's, it's, it's a really well-told story in the book, too. So I really do recommend that people people go go buy the book and, and read it for themselves also. Um, 
So you end the book in 1992. Why this for the particular endpoint? Why the early 1990s? How different, kind of looking at the arc of the Giants over this era, this is a topic that we've touched upon a little bit, but how different are they in 1992 from where the book starts in the late 1970s? Well, the first reason I, I ended here is because I began with this moment in early 1976 when there's a new mayor, George Moscone, who's trying to find a way to keep the team in the city. And I end with this moment in 1992 where there's a new mayor, Frank Jordan, trying to keep the Giants in the city. So, and after 1992, the biggest difference, the, the, the most, I, th I think one of the most important parts of this story, which is, goes unsaid, uh, except I say it in the book, is that, now, now one thing we haven't talked about is that in 1987, after they win the division, there's an initiative to build a new ballpark that's on the ballot in San Francisco, and it loses. In 1989, after they win the pennant, but also after the earthquake, there's an initiative that's on the ballot to build a new team, stadium for the Giants. This one is eventually, this one would have put it exactly where the new one is now. It loses. In 1990 and 90, 91 and 92, there are initiatives down the peninsula to fund a new stadium for the Giants. It loses. So Lurie is fed up. The team clearly doesn't have a home in the Bay Area anymore, and he's willing, ready to sell it to Tampa, which he's not happy about, but he has to do it at that point because he can't keep losing money every year and, and he can't keep going in front of the voters and getting rejected. So this period is the period where every year was a question, where will they play next year? Can the Giants find a way to, to stay in San Francisco? And therefore, are they really San Francisco's team? 1993, the new, the new ownership comes in, and because of the changes in San Francisco, which is a polite way of saying because there's so much more money in San Francisco, you know, even controlling for inflation, all that, by the early 90s compared to the late 70s, that... that after 1993, it's never a question of are the Giants leaving again. 1996, there's a ballot initiative. It finally passes to, to, to you know, agree to sign off on building the team, on building the ballpark for the team, and by 2000, they get this new ballpark. So the biggest difference is that this is the period when there was this tremendous uncertainty, which began in the mid-70s, because the first 15 years was kind of this honeymoon period, if you will, and, and ends in the early 90s about will they stay in San Francisco. And then the other thing is that they're never allowed. They've had some bad teams. I mean, the last few years they've been bad, but the Giants have not been a laughingstock. The Giants have not been precarious, right? If you were to talk about, I mean, I, I don't believe in contraction with regards to major league teams, but if you were to talk about contraction any time in the last 30 years, you would not have mentioned the Giants, whereas you might have in, in the mid-70s or mid-80s. So, and, and, and then the relationship with the team is solidified. And a lot of that is because obviously when they start winning World Series, that helps. But also, this giant, this, this is the period when they start really reconnecting with their history. So I talked about bringing Willie McCovey back in. And, you know, while we mentioned that Willie Mays just celebrated his 90th birthday, but as late as 1990 and probably even 2000, Willie McCovey was more beloved among Giants fans than Willie Mays. Among Americans, Mays is better known. But McCovey had a special place. He was never a New York Giant, and he came back for a few more years uh, to play in San Francisco. But... We also, you also may, know, may remember that in one of the worst decisions that Bowie Kuhn, another commissioner, ever made, and he made some bad ones, he banned Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle for life from baseball in 1979 because they were kind of got, they had jobs like basically shaking hands and playing golf with high rollers at casinos. Think of what MLB is doing about betting now, right? And now think of what they did to these two guys. And Peter Uberoth came in as commissioner in the mid-1980s and reviewed the documents behind this and said, this is nonsense. And he reinstated them. And as soon as they reinstated them, Lurie and the Giants acted very fast and said to Willie Mays, essentially, we want you part of the Giants family again, 
which was great for Mays because he wanted to get back into baseball, but it was also great for the Giants because it helped them build that connection with their past, which is so important for a team building a relationship with a city. And that was also something that we began to see during these years, and we still see as part of the Giants' kind of brand and identity in the city today. It, 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 in a lot of ways, this kind of seems like a story of a team going from still kind of a newcomer on the West Coast to becoming an established team uh, in, in in a city that, that really holds it dear to its heart. That's right. I mean, in, in By the mid-'90s, the Giants are a beloved San Francisco institution. In the mid-'70s, they yeah. were not. And that's a story of how yeah. this happens. Yeah. So, uh, Lincoln, as we start to, to wrap up here, what are you working on next? I kind of, before we started recording, I was asking you some, some questions about the book and about, about future books you might be, be working on. And I kind of pitched to you, you know, I would love to see the story continue. Uh, the Giants get really good, as you've alluded to at the beginning of the 21st century. So is there a fourth book in the series coming up? And, and if not, what are you working on next? Well, there's no, there's no explicit fourth book in this series coming up. I, I am kind of beginning to explore ideas for another baseball book. I'm not quite sure where that will land. And 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 I would, if I'm going to continue writing about the Giants, I want an angle. I want something, you know, do something a little different. So I'm kind of thinking about that. The main thing I'm working on now, writing now, is the biography of George Moscone, who we've talked about a little bit today. But Moscone was the mayor when the, when the story begins. And I think for many Americans who even know his name, he's the other guy who was assassinated with Harvey Milk. But he actually was a hugely important political figure in San Francisco, in the state of California, and also uh, when we, what we now think of as the Obama coalition. In many respects, George Moscone was the first major politician to, to build that coalition. I would be very, let me flesh out what I mean there. He was the first major politician running for major office to speak explicitly about civil rights for LGBT people and for African Americans and to explicitly bring that into coalition without mincing words, without, you know, in the 70s, people didn't talk about gay rights openly. George Moscone did. Uh, when Harvey Milk uh, authored the landmark gay rights bill in San Francisco in 1978, it was George Moscone who signed it into law. And he's also just this fascinating San Francisco character who happened to be an all-city basketball player and the second baseman on his high school baseball team and a big Giants fan. So there's a lot of overlap, but it's not really a baseball book. And then finally, since uh, the last two times you came on the show, it was also towards the start of the, the, the MLB season. I got to ask you again, uh, who do you like in the World Series this year? Well, I assume I got it wrong the previous two times. I didn't check. So we'll just say that you got it right. And congratulations <laughs> okay, sure. Thank on, you. Thank on your you. foresight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really wrestling with this because the Dodgers are very good. But mm -hmm. I can't in good conscience predict the Dodgers to win the World Series. Like my friends and family won't forgive me. Uh, the Giants are still in first place, but I don't know that they're really a first place team. Mm -hmm. I don't see any other anybody in the NL, other two NL divisions who are really strong enough. And the American League, you know, Tampa, Tampa is always, it's easy to underestimate Tampa, but it's hard to see them winning at all. I don't see them as a better team than the one that didn't win at all last year. And living in New York, I just see too many problems with the, with the Yankees. I mean, I don't know how you win the World Series when you're, your, your offensive strategy is having, you know, just a, 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 a stream of, you know, six foot seven right-handed dudes trying to hit the ball a mile. That just doesn't seem like that's ultimately winning. So I'm going to say the Padres. Who, and the Padres are my second favorite National League team in the state of California. Mm-hmm. 
the Padres are a very fun team to watch as well. And yeah, the, uh, I feel this. I feel the same way about, about my beloved Red Sox as as you were as you were saying about the Giants that they're a first place team right now. But you know, the, only if you squint can you really see that lasting into the future. So exactly. I'm, I'm with you on that in that regard. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of '78, where in June and July people were thinking of a Giants Red Sox World Series, and then we ended up with the Yankees and the Dodgers, <laughs> which could happen this year. Oh, great! It could, it could easily be Yankees and the Dodgers this year, right? Uh, that, that, that's a depressing note to end things on there, Lincoln. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's say this. If it's the Yankees and the Dodgers, I'll be rooting for the Yankees. Uh, I'll be, I'll be tuning be. <laughs> out and going to do something else. <laughs> Lincoln Mitchell is a journalist, a political consultant, a writer, and is an associate scholar at the Saltzman Institute for War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. He also hosts a podcast called Say It Ain't Contagious, which explores issues surrounding baseball, politics, and social justice. His latest book is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992, which came out in 2021 from Kent State University Press. Thank you once again for coming on the show today, Lincoln. Thank you. It was a lot of fun, as always.